You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Corbett Report podcast. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan here on the 9th day of October 2020. And you are tuned into episode 386 of the Corbett Report podcast, The Church of the Holy State. Now, you might recall that way back in February of this year, before the world changed forever yet again, I traveled internationally, even, to sunny Acapulco, Mexico, to attend the Anarcopoco Conference. And you might recall that while there, I had the chance to talk to Dr. Ron Paul, and I was interviewed by Josh Sigurdsson, I interviewed Dan Dix. There was a number of different things that came out of that, but most importantly, I was there to deliver a lecture. And here it is. It has been posted to the Anarcopoco YouTube channel, so thank you to Anarcopoco for posting this. And uh, you can go to their channel directly if you want to uh, support them. But here it is. This is the lecture. And I will only say by way of introduction that uh, the feed that they were broadcasting here, it has a couple of slight dropouts where you might lose a few words here and there, but uh, nothing that will impede your progress in understanding what I'm saying. I think it's all perfectly understandable. So without further ado, welcome to the Church of the Holy State worship service. Welcome, my friends, to the Church of the Holy State. <clears throat> the state be with you. You may be seated. Ooh, good response. <clears throat> Let us bow our heads in prayer. Our leader, who art in the capital, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom, or other mutually acceptable form of governance come, thy will be done in Acapulco as it is in Mexico City. Give us this day our daily food stamps and forgive us our tax arrears as we forgive the government for putting us into debt. And lead us not into anarchy, but deliver us from freedom. For thine is the democracy, the power, and the glory until the next election. Amen. Today's hymn will be Amazing State. Feel free to sing along if you know the words. Amazing state, how sweet the rule of our wise congress just pay your tax you stupid fool and leave the rest to us Forsake my sovereignty and join the party. I lick boots of authority and vote my 
and life to thee. Don't disrespect the president or will jail all of ya. If you don't like our government, then move to Somalia. It's very unorthodox to clap for a hymn. <laughs> but I'll take it at kodomosan.com. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> Check it out. Uh, do, 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 do. All right. Well, thank you for coming for today's worship service. I'm glad you could make it. And we'll start with some announcements. First of all, as you, I'm sure you know by now, next week is the church potluck, so everyone is humbly requested to bring some food and beverages for us all to partake in. And of course, it is completely voluntary, and I know you do it from the bottom of your heart, but please be aware that if you fail to bring anything, armed agents of the church will come to your door and collect it from your kitchen. Uh, let's see, what else? Oh, yes. Um, I'm getting word that the Emperor's motorcade is going to be passing on the west side of the building. So if you're parked in the parking lot and your car is facing the east, you're obviously going to have to turn that around facing the Emperor out of respect. So that can... Wait. Uh, sorry, that was the wrong note. That was for our Japanese congregation. Uh, sorry. Uh, Mexico doesn't have an emperor, right? Oh, okay. All right, you can disregard that announcement for now. I'll let you know about any presidential motorcades that pass by, though. You think I'm joking, but they actually do that in Japan. <clears throat> All right, well, my dear flock, it is time for today's sermon. And I know that you have all eagerly been awaiting the eighth part in my never-ending series of sermons on the beauty of the book of Romans, chapter 13. But I'm afraid that that will have to be postponed for another day, because I've been called today to deliver a sermon on a different subject, a much more unpleasant subject. Yes, today we're going to have to broach, listen to, but certainly not entertain unorthodox ideas. And let's just ask the dear Lord, our government, to harden our hearts against knowledge and information as we delve into this. <laughs> yes, we're not simply going to talk about an unorthodox opinion. We're going to talk about heresy, and not just any heresy, but the ultimate heresy. If you have any small children with you, please make sure you avert their eyes, cover their ears. In fact, just do that for most of their lives. 
yes, today we're going to talk about statheism. <laughs> now, my dear flock, I know for many of you this is the first time you have ever even heard the word statheism, and you cannot even imagine this concept, which is good. Oh, I wish I could maintain you in your perfect innocence. But it has come to my attention that the heresy of statism is catching on amongst the congregation, and it must be nipped in the bud. So, in order to do this, let's talk first a little bit about our beloved church, the Church of Statism. As you know, we here at the Church of the Holy State are open to everyone. Christians, Jews, Muslims, assorted other, Heck, if you like to run around in the redwoods for a couple months, a couple weeks every summer and commit mock human sacrifices in front of giant owl statues, go right ahead. It's perfectly okay. <clears throat> We're not here to judge. In fact, it might even get you ahead in politics. <sighs> yes, you are all welcome here. Everyone, regardless of race or gender or sexual orientation. But there is one thing that we cannot tolerate in our midst, and that is statheism. Now, to truly understand the depths of the depravity of this subject, let us start by going through something much more comfortable and familiar, I'm sure. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the history of our beloved religion. You see, my dear sheep, as you know, there was a time once, long ago, before the fall, when our dear, innocent, sweet, naive, ignorant, lovely forefathers and foremothers couldn't even conceive of the question of why we should give our fealty to whoever deems to be ruling our particularly arbitrarily defined geographical area, because your leader is God. That's not a metaphor, that's not hyperbole, that's not rhetoric, that is literally what our beloved ancestors believed. Of course, your leader is God. If you lived in the fourth dynasty of Egypt, you knew that the Pharaoh was literally Ra. Are you going to defy Ra? Well, good luck with that. Enjoy the pestilence and famine and plagues. No, no, not for me, sir. I am going to go and build some giant stone monument to that god. You do what you do. Oof. And as my Japanese brothers and sisters would know, and who herself was descendant of the two gods that stirred the primordial soup with their heavenly spear and took the salty brine and dipped it on the oceans, creating the islands of Japan. I mean, everyone knows that. <laughs> so the emperor is literally a descendant of the sun goddess, the current emperor of the chrysanthemum. Now, I've been told that many members of our Japanese congregation don't literally believe this anymore. But some of the right-wing crazies do. God bless them. And then, of course, even in our own era, there are some who still thankfully cleave on to their ignorance 
and worship their leader as God. You might ask yourself, how can it be that a modern state has a dead man as an eternal president and the literal official head of state? And I would say because North Korea, of course. Yes, the great leader, Kim Il-sung, who is dead, question mark, is the official head of state of North Korea and remains so eternally because he is the eternal president. And obviously he is the eternal president because he is a supernatural divine being. I mean, think about it. The North Koreans count their calendar from the year of his birth. It is not 2020, it's Juchi 103. Get with the times, people. Uh, and if any proof were needed of his supernatural abilities, proof, really? Well, I will have you know that, as all good North Koreans know, Kim Il-sung can become invisible, appear in two places at once, turn pine cones into bullets and grains of rice into, uh, grains of sand into rice, which is more impressive than rice into sand, and somewhat unoriginally, he can walk on water. He even has 10 commandments. They are called the 10 principles for the establishment of the one ideology system, which includes such beautiful gems as number three, we must make absolute the authority of the great leader, Kim Il-sung. And number four, we must make the great leader, Kim Il-sung's revolutionary ideology, our faith and make his instructions our creed. Not joking, people, look it up. <sighs> beautiful, beautiful ignorance. But, as you know, we have fallen from grace. And in the modern secular age, people no longer believe their leaders are literally divine beings, except for our North Korean brothers and sisters. And I'm half tempted with Justin. I mean, come on. So we had to come up with different ways, different theological justifications for the rule of man over man. Why does that person get to rule over that person? Well, okay, they're not literally God, but they were chosen by God. So different cultures have answered this in different ways over the years. For example, of course, the Chinese had their dynastic system under the mandate of heaven. When there were times of strife, pestilence, plague, famine, depredation, a new ruler would come along promising to restore order. And if that new ruler did so, well, clearly that was because God gave a mandate for this ruler to take over China and to rule it. And so his family became a dynasty. And as time wore on and the dynasty grew long in the tooth and corrupt and the country once again falls into chaos, well then clearly God has taken the mandate of heaven away and it is time for a new ruler to step in. A perfectly logical system. And one that had its uh, similar similarities to the European monarchies, the absolute monarchies and the divine right of kings. Okay, no, the king isn't literally a god, but who's placing the crown on his head, I ask you? That's God, of course. God places the crown. God gives the right to this person to rule over us, of course. Thank you, Queen Elizabeth Beast. <laughs> now, again, 
This was a very effective ideology, theology, I should say, because, of course, under the divine right of kings, only God can judge whether a king is just or unjust, and thus any attempt to overthrow a king is not just wrong, it is actually sacrilegious. But over time, people got a little comfortable with committing sacrilege. And you had Emperor Napoleon, peace be upon him, taking, snatching the crown out of the Pope's hand to crown himself, which, again, kind of further undermined the, the whole God is crowning me kind of thing. So we had to come up with a new testament, as it were, a new gospel spreading the word about why it is that government deserves to rule over you. And so, what arose was a new idea. And this idea was so perfectly simple that we can go through it in a few seconds. You already know it. You see, God grants self-rule to man, who transmutes that self-rule through the divine sacrament of the voting box into the will of the people, which then, via a number of intermediaries, choose the group that governs us all. Right? Perfectly clear. Clear, right? Oh, not clear? Well, don't trouble your little heads about it. It's okay. There's only one thing you really need to know, and that's this. God is government. Government is God. Let's just split the difference. Let's call it gov. <laughs> but come to think of it, yeah, why do we even need the God part? Let's just skip to the government. Well, in order to understand how we achieved the apotheosis of government, the divinization of the state in this secular age, we're going to have to go through some history. So, let's talk about one of the most profoundly important political events of the 19th century, at least as it pertains to the Church of State American denomination, which may be surprising because it wasn't a political event at all, but it still has political ramifications that resound down even to us today. That event was called the Second Great Awakening, obviously a, re a reference to the First Great Awakening, which took place in the American colonies before the Revolutionary War. The Second Great Awakening was a Protestant revival movement that swept across the United States in the early 19th century, and it swept aside the stodgy old liturgical formalism of those stick-in-the-mud Calvinists and people like that, and replaced their re importance on personal salvation through individual piety and living in the early 19th century, but immediately fracture into many different varieties and denominations, like flavors. Well, so too the pietists immediately split into two factions around the incredibly important theological question of millennialism. Of course, as I'm sure you already know, millennialism, we're talking about Revelations, the book of Revelations, chapter 20, which talks about Satan being bound and thrown into the abyss, a thousand years of peaceful reign of Christ over the world, and then Satan will get unleashed again and defeated again, this time for good, I think. 
Well, actually, that's kind of the problem. Uh, there were different interpretations of these passages, shall we say. So you had the post-millennialists and the pre-millennialists. The pre-millennialists believe that in the present church age, that will end when Satan is bound, and then you will have the millennium of Christ's reign, and then you will have the final defeat of Satan and eternal happiness of kingdom of heaven on earth. But the post-millennialists, on the other hand, believe that we are currently in the millennium, which may or may not be actually a thousand years, don't trouble the details. Anyway, we're currently in that period, and it is only when the gospel has been spread, Satan, and we will live in the eternal happiness of the kingdom of God on earth. Now, that might sound to you like debating about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, but I assure you it is not. It is a vitally important question that has profound political ramifications. Think about it. If you believe that we are not going to achieve the eternal state of happiness unless and until we spread the gospel to all the corners of the world and everyone is living a virtuous Christian life, then it's not just a thing you'd like to do. It's not, it's not even just a duty or an obligation. It's the thing you want most in the world is to spread this gospel as far as you can and make sure everyone is living a virtuous Christian life. But how do you go about doing that exactly? I mean, that's kind of, kind of a tall order. I know. We'll use government. Right? Government can make everybody live the type of life that we want them to live. It can eliminate even the possibility of sin. So we can get closer to the second coming. All right. Sounds like, sounds like a good plan. So that's the way post-millennial pi pietists, don't say I don't teach you polysyllabic words in these sermons. Let's see if I can say it. Post-millennial pietists tended with their ideas. For example, the great saint, Richard T. Ely, peace be upon him, an economist, a thinker, a social advocate, and a post-millennial pietist who very much shared in the beliefs of his generation. That will lead us towards salvation and eternal happiness. So, today I would like to read from our holy book, Harper's Week. Read along if you have your copy. <laughs> From the essay entitled Anarchy by Richard T. Ely, which begins thusly. Quote, the successful treatment of disease requires correct diagnosis. Anarchy is a social disease of a malignant type. He goes on to say, the anarchists are natural and avowed social rebels. The disease which we are examining is an old-fashioned one, with an old-fashioned name which scares It is said that Cain was the first anarchist. But there is a story of an older and far more powerful anarchist, the king of all anarchists, that arch-rebel Satan. Real quotes, folks. Look them up. The power of society must be brought to bear upon rebellion and put it down. And society, we may all rest assured, is equal to this task. But this is not sufficient. 
the philosophy underlying anarchy cannot be rooted out by physical force. Let me repeat that for the heart of thinking. The philosophy underlying anarchy cannot be rooted out by uh, physical force. Wise thinkers have long recognized that the only cure for a bad philosophy is a good philosophy. We must replace the philosophy of freedom and happiness through rebellion with the philosophy of real freedom and real happiness through obedience. (laughs) We must learn to recognize the state as something sacred or else... We must establish upon a firm foundation the right of man to exercise authority over his fellows, showing in what this right originates, what maintains it, and what holds it within desirable limits. Indeed, if government is mere brute force, why should it not be resisted by brute force? Is the policeman's club the beginning and end of authority? If this is so, What ethical reason can be deduced to show that someone stronger than he should not wrest the club from him? Good questions. Bless me, Justin, for I have sinned. Uh, Bad questions. Horrible questions. Rest assured, there are answers to those questions, and they they were provided by Richard T. Ely later on in that essay where... He assures us that government is good because of God or something, and preachers should preach about politics or something. I don't know. Read it for you. No, don't read it for yourself. Just trust me. I know. (laughs) So all well and good. As I say, I started today with a comforting and comfortable message that we all know. Of course, this is the beautiful word of our saints like Richard T. Ely and others who have finally found the theological justification for the roots of the question of why some men have authority over others, right? This is where we must enter into the realm of heresy. And once again, folks, I ask you to be very careful with what ideas you let into your heart today lest they corrupt you. Because we are dealing with some wicked, wicked heretics. Heretics like this man. Ah. Look at his evil visage, just dripping with hatred and scorn. Not like our beautiful saints, Herr Kissinger or... Oh, oh, yes, for those who don't know, I'm referring to Murray Rothbard. <laughs> Thank you. Indeed, yes, a heretic of a high order, a heretic who spawned many, many, many more heretics and continues to do so through works like this one, The Progressive Era available in a handsome edition from the Mises Institute with a nice foreword by Judge Andrew Napolitano. Definitely don't read it. Buy it. 
and then uh, burn it, and then buy it again. <laughs> yes, in the progressive era, Murray Rothbard takes the history that we've just been through and, well, puts a little bit of a different interpretation on it. Let's see what Mr. Rothbard... Richard T. Ely was born on a farm in western New York near Fredonia in the Buffalo area. His father, Ezra, a descendant of Puritan refugees from Restoration England, came from a long line of Congregationalist and Presbyterian clergy. Ezra, who had come to, from rural Connecticut, was a farmer whose poor soil was suited only to... Highly intense about religion, Ezra was an extreme Sabbatarian who prohibited games or books, except the Bible, upon the Sabbath, and hated tobacco as well as liquor. Richard was highly religious, but not as focused... Oh, yeah. Sorry, I'm not pointing at Richard T. Ely anymore. Richard was highly religious, but not as focused as his father. He grew up mortified at not having had a conversion experience. He learned early to get along with wealthy benefactors, borrowing a substantial amount of money from the, his wealthy Columbia classmate, Edwin R. A. Seligman of the New York investment banking family, graduating from Columbia in 1876 in a country where there was not yet a PhD program, Ely joined most of the economists, historians, philosophers, and social scientists of his generation in traveling to Germany, the land of the PhD, for his doctorate. As in the case of his fellows, Ely was enchanted with the third way or organic statism that he and others thought they found in Hegel and in German social doctrine. As luck would have it, the Johns Hopkins, there Ely taught and found disciples in a glittering array of budding statist economists, social scientists, and historians, uh, uh, some of whom were barely older than he was, including Chicago sociologist and econ uh, economist Albion W. Small. Chicago economist Edward W. Bemis, uh, economist and sociologist Edward Allsworth Ross, City College of New York President John H. Finley, Wisconsin historian Frederick Jackson Turner, and future president Woodrow Wilson. Small world. Moving on, he says, the key to Ely's thought was that he virtually divinized the state God, he declared, works through the state in carrying out his purposes more universally than through any other institution. In Ely's eyes, government was the God-given instrument through which we had to work. Its preeminence as meant ethical solutions to public problems. The same identification of sacred and secular enabled Ely to both divinize the state and socialize Christianity. He thought of government as God's main instrument of redemption. Well, so far so good. I mean, that seems in line with what we were talking about earlier, right? Richard T. Ely, post-millennial pietist, believes that government is God or can at least force people into a godly life and that he would use the power of government to do so. But Rothbard has a slightly different take on it, doesn't he? Well... Interesting, then, how this movement of post-millennial pietists progressed, one might say, into a progressive movement that was more and more about the state and its power and less and less about what there is a religious motivation to this, I guess, I think. So I will read another passage from Rothbard, 
but I'm just really like, oh, good, I've got it. I thought my altar boy, Benny Wills, had forgotten the other book, but it's my own, my own stupid fault. So let's, let's move on to someone who exemplified in his life and his work that movement of the post-millennial pietists into the progressive movement. Once again, Rothbard writes, a striking example of the secularization of a post-millennial progressive leader is the famed founder of pragmatist philosophy and progressive education, the prophet of atheistic higher democracy, philosopher John. <laughs> Dewey was an ardent preacher of post-millennialism and the coming of the kingdom. Addressing the Students' Christian Association at Michigan, Dewey argued that the biblical notion of the kingdom of God come to earth was a valuable truth which had been lost to the world, but now the growth of modern science and the communication of knowledge has made the world ripe for the temporal realization of the kingdom of God, the common incarnate life, the purpose animating all men and binding them together into one harmonious whole of sympathy. Revelation of truth is carried on. It was only in democracy, asserted Dewey, that the community of ideas and interests through community of action, that the incarnation of God in man, man, that is to say, an organ of universal truth, becomes a living, present thing. Dewey concluded with a call to action. Can anyone ask for better or more inspiring work? Surely to fuse into one the social and religious motive, to break down the barriers of Phariseeism and self-assertion which isolate religious thought and con- Surely this is a cause worth battling for. Thus, with Dewey, the final secularization is at hand. The truth of Jesus Christ was the unfolding truth brought to man by modern science and modern democracy. Clearly, it was but one small step for John Dewey, as well as many... Uh, as well as for other similarly situated progressives, to abandon Christ and to keep his ardent faith in government, science, and democracy to bring about an atheized kingdom of God on earth. Well, that's Rothbard for you. I mean, okay, he gets the facts straight and, you know, backs it up with actual quotations and stuff, but he seems to think this is a bad thing. No, no, the state has been divinized, and we don't even need to worry about that God stuff anymore. We just have the government, and it can make people good. What's wrong with that? Well, I'll have you know, there are many statheists who believe that there is something wrong with that. Which brings us to our next heretic. A particularly vile heretic spreading his heresy everywhere he goes. Perhaps you've met him. (laughs) It is his belief that not only is this whole God is government thing wrong, but that government itself is immoral. In his book, The Most Dangerous Superstition, which if you ever see him walking around, please buy a copy of from him. He writes about the immorality of government. So if you do ever encounter this heretic, please, you must really harden your heart against him. But I'm going to read a passage from The Most Dangerous Superstition, which makes this point. In a section called Big or Small, Left or Right, 
it's still evil. Larkin Rose writes, It is true that the degree of evil and the types of immoral aggression advocated vary based upon the different styles of statism. Constitutionalists, for example, advocate relatively low levels of robbery and extortion, taxation, and advocate that only certain limited activities and behaviors should be controlled via threats and coercion, regulation. But every power which any constitution pretends to grant to any legislature is a power not possessed by mere mortal individuals. Who would bother writing into a constitution a line pretending to delegate to certain people a right already possessed by everyone else? All such grants of power and any document purporting to create a government or empower any legislature to do anything are attempts to issue a license to commit evil. However, as should be patently self-evident, no person or group of people, regardless of what documents they create or rituals they perform, can grant to someone else moral permission to commit evil. And putting supposed limits on such permission does not make it any more sane or legitimate. In short, to advocate, to advocate government is always to advocate evil. Liberals and conservatives both insist that someone needs to be in charge because that is the reality they were raised in. The only thing required of them was that they remain obedient to authority. From that training, they have little or no idea what to do if left to their own devices, if no one is telling them what to do. So they refuse to grow up and try to hallucinate into existence a superhuman authority. Paradoxically, even though there is no earthly species above human beings, they seek to fabricate this superhuman entity out of nothing but human beings, and they try to bestow upon it superhuman qualities, rights, and virtues. The entire concept is delusional, but it's shared by the vast majority of people the world over, who refuse to accept the fact that there is no shortcut to determining right and wrong. There is no, no magic trick which will make truth and justice automatically prevail. There is no system that can guarantee safety or fairness, and that everyday mortal human beings, with all of their deficiencies and shortcomings, are the best and only hope for civilization. There is no tooth fairy or Santa Claus or magical entity called government which can make an immoral species behave morally or make a group of imperfect people function perfectly. And the belief in such an entity, rather than being merely pointless and ineffective, drastically increases the overall conflict, injustice, intolerance, violence, oppression, and murder in human society. Nonetheless, most of those indoctrinated into the worship of government would rather cling to their familiar, horrible, destructive, heinously evil, profoundly anti-human superstitions that grow up then grow up and accept the fact that there is no one above them, that there's no giant mummy or daddy to save the day, that they are at the top and that each of them is personally responsible for deciding what he should do and then doing it. Sadly, they would rather suffer the hell of perpetual war and total enslavement than face the uncertainty and responsibility that comes with freedom. The belief in authority negates and overrides nearly all of the positive effects of religious and moral beliefs. What most people call their religion is empty window dressing, and what most people tout as their moral virtue is irrelevant, as long as they believe in the myth of authority. 
Christians, for example, are taught things such as, if someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. Uh, Love your neighbor, and even love your enemy, and do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Yet every so-called Christian who believes in government constantly forsakes these principles, advocating constant aggression against everyone, friend and enemy, neighbor and stranger, via the cult of government, to put on a show of being pious, religious, compassionate, loving, and virtuous, while voting for a gang that promises to use violence to control the actions of everyone you know, is the height of hypocrisy. To refrain from personally robbing one's neighbor, while pushing for someone else to do it, is both cowardly and hypocritical. Yet almost every Christian and every member of every other religion does such things on a regular basis by way of political advocacy. As mentioned before, faith in government is a purely religious belief. As such, the vast majority of those who wear the label atheist are not actually atheists because they believe in the God called government. They do not recognize it as a religious belief, of course, but their belief in that ethereal superhuman savior of mankind, authority, is as deep and faith-based as any other religious belief. These are the words of heretics. And let me ask you, my flock, to please purchase a copy of this book. Read it cover to cover, twice if you need to, three times. And challenge your faith. See if your faith in the status government holds up under such an onslaught. I eagerly await the results. But it is time for our final piece of apocrypha. This one is a little bit different. It's not a published book available for sale. It's uh, some pages I found on the internet. I thought I would share them with you. It reads, Politics is a rigged game staged by the banksters, the corporations, and their cronies to distract the public from the forces that are really running the world. When fully grown adults believe in the political puppet show and even invest their identities in it to the point where they're cheering the heroes and booing the villains, it is every bit as pathetic as fully grown adults believing in professional wrestling. If you view it, either politics or professional wrestling, as a cheesy soap opera-like entertainment, fair enough. But if you genuinely believe that the staged conflicts and phony dramas are real and truly reflect the governing process of the country, let alone the world, then I don't know what to say to you. You are so far detached from reality that you're probably beyond all hope. I hate to break it to you, but your favorite political figures are marionettes. The only reason they exist on the political stage at all is because the political puppet masters have decided that they are effective spokespeople for this or that agenda, or that they're good at distracting you from this or that agenda. Newsflash, Trump runs nothing. Hillary wouldn't have a career if she didn't literally follow the lead of Soros or go to the CFR mothership for her foreign policy marching orders. Real quote, look it up. If Sanders became president, it would be exactly the same. Ditto for whoever is your personal choice for dream president. Tulsi supporters, I'm looking at you. 
Yes, people who believe in the political puppet show are like the prisoners in Plato's cave, watching the shadows on the wall before them and mistaking those shadows for reality. But it's even worse than that. If only this were a corrupt, rigged system, then the answer would be straightforward, if not easy to implement. Simply clean up politics. Once we have a fair election that really represents the will of the people, you know, 50% plus one of the population, then everything will be peachy keen, right? Wrong. Because government itself is immoral. No, I don't want better elections. I don't want to clean up the system. I don't want to get the money out of politics and make sure every vote is counted and drain the swamp so we can make America or any other geographical location great again. The state is not a benevolent force, despite what the most brainwashed of statists believe. It's not even a neutral tool that can be used for good or ill, as those who consider themselves pragmatists believe. It is force. It is aggression. It is people believing that what is wrong for any individual to do is perfectly okay if an agent of the state does it. If I steal, it is theft. If the state steals, it's taxation. If I kill, it is murder. If the state kills, it is warfare. If I force someone to work for me involuntarily, it is slavery. If the state does it, it is conscription. If I confine someone against their will, it is kidnapping. If the state does it, it is incarceration. Nothing has changed but the label. What binds us to the state is the belief that there is a different morality for anything that has been sanctified through the political process. Oh, 50% plus one of the population voted for forced vaccinations? Then I guess we have to comply. If you scoff at that sentence, how about if the vote was 100% minus one? Would that change the morality of resistance? How about if forced vaccinations were mandated by the Constitution? Then would you be compelled to submit? Does the ballot box transform the unethical into the ethical? Of course not. But I'll tell you what it does do. It makes everyone who casts their ballot a part of the process that legitimizes the murder and violence committed by agents of the state. No, I am not an efficiency manager for the state. I do not want to help it do its job of inflicting aggression and violence on peaceful people. I want the state to perish, yeah. not through violence or bloodshed, but by removing the mystical superstition from the minds of the general public that makes them believe that government is anything other than a gang of thugs with a fancy title. This is the point that in my experience as a communicator of voluntarist ideas, I start butting up against a brick wall of incomprehension when talking to the normies in the crowd. They start having mental breakdowns, frothing at the mouth. Votes need to happen! As if voting, elections, positions of responsibility, and other things that exist under statism could not exist under voluntary association. As if voluntary association itself was such a, a bizarre and bewildering concept that no one could possibly wrap their head around it, let alone, heaven forfend, crack a book or two on the subject. No, no, no. Much easier to go back to the comforting political wrestling match. Red versus blue? Now that's something I can get behind. 
That's a travesty, really, because the truth is that this is not a complicated message. It's actually remarkably simple and remarkably hopeful. The truth is that there is only one vote that matters. You'd think that a message like this would be all doom and gloom. Oh, sure, James, say the statists in the crowd, twirling their handlebar mustaches and fingering the I voted sticker proudly displayed on their chest. But what's your solution? Sitting around and not voting is not going to change anything. Now, I'm tempted to say, why ask for one solution when I've provided dozens? But more seriously, I would say, you're right. No, really, you're right. Sitting around and not voting is not going to change anything. Yeah, by all means, let's vote. But, you knew there was a but coming. I'm not talking about voting in some phony baloney selection to anoint some political puppet as president of this or that geographical area. I'm talking about the only vote that matters. Hmm. If only I had a way to explain this to the normies. Ah, I do. The political system itself is just another form of enslavement. An enslavement that is all the more insidious because it asks us to buy into it. All we have to do is push a button or pull a lever or touch a screen once every four years and we are now absolved from our moral responsibility. Ironically, this realization is in itself liberating and puts the world into focus with crystal clarity. We are not cogs in some machine called society to be dictated by nebulous entities that we've been taught to call the government or the authorities. We are free individuals, freely interacting with those around us, bound by the moral injunction not to initiate force against others or take things from, uh, from others against their will. We are responsible for our actions and their consequences, both positive and negative. We are responsible for what we do or don't do to help those in our community and to make this world better or leave it to rot. There's no political messiah that will descend from the heavens to tell us what to do or to protect us from the bad men. All we have is ourself and our choices. We vote every day not in some meaningless election, but in who we choose to associate with, what we choose to spend our money on, what we choose to invest our time and energy doing. This is the essence of freedom. For us, it's painful to watch our brothers and sisters getting swept up in the election cycle hype. We watch the sad spectacle, not with a sense of scorn or derision, but with sadness for those who have not yet woken up to the reality of their mental enslavement. That sadness, however, is tempered by hope. Hope that one day, those poor voters who are trudging off to that booth Well, my dear flock, it's come to that time where we will end today's sermon. But I'm going to end today's sermon with something of a revelation. Uh, you see, this particular piece of Apocrypha is not anonymous. I have located and discovered the author. And he is in our midst. <gasps> Thank you. Yes, and I will reveal him to you. Hold on.
Yes, yes, yes. You all thought you were getting a sermon from the Reverend Status to Jim, but no, I'm his evil twin brother, or his good twin brother, James Corbett. And I am not an adherent to the church of the state, and I hope you're not either. But if you are, and there may be people in the crowd who are, I would once again suggest challenging your faith in the state by subjecting it to a bit of question. Seeing if your ideas are really in line with what you believe you believe. And I hope you understand the point of today's sermon. It's not to do with religion, the religions. It's to do with the religion of statism. It is how statism, the state, has replaced the realm of religion in society so that people are worshiping government without even really understanding or knowing it. They are simply in a system where they are giving over their own personal sovereignty to some entity through some process that happens every few years. Let's not think about it. What are you talking about, James? But, well, I hope, I hope I'm not the only one who underneath is really an anarchist. And I hope we all understand that this is actually an empowering message. It is not a message of doom and gloom and sadness. It is a message of hope. Because once you have that realization, once you break the chains of the statist dogma, you realize that we hold all the power. It's ours. It's not them. It's us. we have to do is walk away. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Yeah!